To be sure, all this costs us all a good deal of money. This year's space budget is three times what it was, $5 billion, $400 million. A staggering sum, even though I realize that this is, in some measure, an act of faith and vision. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. On September 12, 1962, President John Fitzgerald Kennedy stood before a crowd at Rice University in Houston, Texas, and said that within eight years, America would put a man on the moon. It was a staggeringly bold declaration that came less than six months after the US put its first ever astronaut, John Glenn, into low Earth orbit for less than five hours. But astonishingly, they did it. NASA's greatest achievement was only possible on account of having an ally in the White House, especially one as handy behind a lectern as Jack Kennedy was. But in the decades that followed, American public investment in the space program waned. Confronted with steeply increasing costs from NASA's next big tilt at moving the evolution of space travel forward, the space shuttle program, and increasingly scarce government resources that were being soaked up by an expansion in domestic social programs and a series of foreign wars. Enthusiasm among politicians in Washington to allocate funding to NASA dried up. And humankind's exploration of space slowed down dramatically, then shuddered almost to a halt. until the arrival of SpaceX ushered in a new era of private investment that since energized a resurgence in not just humankind's expeditions into outer space, but our collective imagination about what might be possible out there. Space is back, and it's quite extraordinary how quickly things are moving. Did you see it in the sky tonight? An incredible sight visible across Southern California as a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket carrying Starlink satellites launched from Vandenberg Space Force Base. Minutes from now, the launch window will open for the SpaceX Falcon Heavy rocket. The astronauts, members of the Crew-6 mission, run jointly by NASA and SpaceX, departed the space station at 7.05 Eastern. There are very high hopes for a historic liftoff from Texas. The window for SpaceX to launch its Starship, the tallest rocket ever built, opens at 10 p.m. tonight. The world's largest and most powerful rocket exploded yesterday just a few minutes into its maiden voyage. SpaceX founder Elon Musk tweeted congratulations to his team. This was a very classic successful failure. This is the SpaceX way. In 2021, the first ever all-civilian mission to space was successfully completed when Inspiration4 splashed down safely after spending three days in outer space. That mission's commander, Jared Isaacman, is heading back out as the commander of Polaris Dawn, slated to blast off by the end of Q1 next year. Today, the entire crew of Polaris Dawn will be our guests. The team are currently in the midst of a demanding training schedule, preparing for their mission. And part of the training they undertake is physical. When Polaris Dawn blasts off in 2024, the launch vehicle will accelerate to more than 17,000 miles per hour on its way into orbit, exposing the crew to about four Gs. That means as its main rocket fires the Polaris spacecraft into space, 
Each astronaut contained within it will briefly weigh four times what they normally would, standing on the ground below. There are only two places on Earth where you can simulate this temporary localised change in gravity, without being strapped onto the end of a rocket, travelling into outer space. The first is inside a human centrifuge, a training system that spins an enclosed capsule on a rotating arm to recreate the additional G-force that astronauts are subjected to during both launch and re-entry. The only other place you can experience it without ending up in low Earth orbit is in the cockpit of a fighter jet. I met the crew of Polaris Dawn at their fighter jet training program in Bozeman, Montana, where they took time out from a day of training in the skies to sit down and discuss their upcoming mission. But before they did that, they invited me to tag along on one of the flights. There were three aircraft on our hop, and two of them were Alpha Jets. Light attack fighter aircraft, not dissimilar to the one Viper flies in Top Gun. Good morning, gentlemen. The temperature is 110 degrees. Holy shit, it's Viper! I'm going after Viper. Break now, Jester. Come on, goddammit. One was flown by former US Air Force F-16 pilot Scott Poteet, callsign KID. The astronaut who will be flying the Polaris Dawn spacecraft and who spent time as a combat pilot, then an Air Force Thunderbird before setting his sights on outer space. The other was flown by John Balm, callsign Slick, a decorated combat veteran who flew the F-16 in Iraq, Afghanistan and all over the world before being asked back to teach at one of the programs he graduated from earlier in his career, Air Force Fighter Weapons School, which is Top Gun. I was flown by the commander of Polaris Dawn, Jared Isaacman, callsign Rook, in the back seat of a McCoyan Fulcrum, a twin jet-engined Russian-made two-seat fighter jet, better known as a MiG-29. After we suited up, I sat in on the pre-flight briefing. And for the record, that's when I started to get nervous. So I'm um, ghost one, you're two. Two. Three. Uh, 22475 should already be in everybody's COM2. Guard to the south, release brakes, we're going afterburner. You're with me, right? Yeah. This is going to be the first moment where you're going to practice your G-straining maneuver. You should get a heads up from us before we pull any little Gs. Start tightening every muscle in the lower half of your body, starting from your toes, like all the way up, as hard as you can. And you're going to fight it, fight it, fight it, and uh, do that every time we go into a G maneuver. And then we're going to make a journey through some canyons. This is essentially a tail chase, so two and three are going to be behind me in the MiG. And as soon as we pop out from the canyons, we're over the water, we go right up into an afterburner loop, come down, this is also a lot of Gs, so like up into the loop, out, roller two, and then I was almost bingo at that point, so. It didn't seem like a track for beginners, but I think what made me nervous the most, aside obviously from learning we'd be conducting a pursuit through a canyon, were the grins spreading across each one of these dudes' faces. You see, I didn't find this out until later that evening at the pub, but Kid, Slick and Rook have spent many hours in the air together over the years as part of an outfit separate to the Polaris program. In 2011, Rook and Slick founded a new venture called Draken International, a military contractor that provides adversary air services to the US military. 
The flies at Draken play the role of the enemy, or in aviation parlance, the bandits. When active duty fighter pilots undergo advanced training in aerial combat, which the flyers called dogfighting. But they were subject to no such official brief that day. It was just us up there. And pretty much right from the get-go, it was fairly obvious that they were having fun. Ghost 3 is good G. Go trail 3. Holy shit! 3's <laughs> in. It was extraordinary. When we landed back at Bozeman Airport, Kit and I met up with two of the other Polaris Dawn astronauts, Anna Menon and Sarah Gillis, and spoke about the mission as a group before I sat down one-on-one with Commander Jared Isaacman. Jared comes to be an astronaut via an unusual path. Unlike most other veteran space commanders, he's got a day job as the billionaire founder of New York Stock Exchange listed Shift 4 Payments. And unlike most other billionaires, he's 40. But Jared's designs on space haven't gone uncriticized. There's a substantial cohort in society that views the privatization of space travel as billionaires' indulgence and for whom the entire enterprise is a colossally expensive vanity project. Jared and I discussed these issues along with many of his other expectations for the upcoming mission to space. I'm Jack Wright, an Australian journalist based in New York City. I'm a contributor to the Washington Post and the Australian Financial Review and a former executive director of JP Morgan Chase. Before I sat down with Jared, I met with the crew of Polaris Dawn. About that close to the mic, if possible. They've got little um, swivelly things underneath if you want to move them. And could I just have everyone just do a quick sound check? Com check, one, two, three, four, five. Com check, one, two, three, four, five. See, I call it a sound check because I'm a journo. You guys call it a com check because you're astronauts. <laughs> com check, five, four, three, two, one. Hey. Okay, guys. Well, thank you so much for taking a, a quick moment to sit down and talk with me today. This is the first time I've ever interviewed anyone after stepping out of a MiG-29 fighter jet. <laughs> so you'll forgive me if um, perhaps I'm a little bit more excitable than I typically would be at the beginning of an interview. How are you feeling? Uh, that was wonderful. It was an extraordinary experience. I, I feel like um, like a little kid that just got off a roller coaster for the first time. You actually looked like a little kid. <laughs> yeah, righto, mate. We don't all do that every day. <laughs> so you could see me inside the cockpit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> a few fist pumps going. Pumps, selfies, the whole I did take a few selfies. I'll stick my hand up for that. Now, so my listeners know who I'm speaking with. I'm sitting here with three of the four crew of Polaris Dawn, uh, which is the next mission to space uh, being operated by uh, SpaceX and also uh, Polaris itself, I guess we would say. Um, Would you mind just taking uh, 20 seconds each to introduce yourselves, your name and uh, your background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So my name is Sarah Gillis and I am currently a space operations engineer with SpaceX. I work on the astronaut training team there, and that's how I met Jared originally, and now I am going to be one of the mission specialists on Polaris Dawn. I am Anna Menon, and I also am a space operations engineer at SpaceX. I develop the operations that our astronauts do in our space capsules, as well as work as one of the mission directors in Mission Control. And then on this mission, I will be a, one of the mission specialists as well as the medical officer. 
And I am Scott Poteet. My call sign is Kid. So most people call me Kid. I spent uh, 20 years in the Air Force flying the F-16. Um, assignments included uh, Air Force Thunderbirds, uh, Fighter Weapons School, which is the Air Force version of Top Gun, uh, Aggressor Commander, and some uh, operational test experience as well. When I retired, I started working with Jared uh, on his company called Draken International. And then uh, shortly thereafter, uh, Jared decided he would like to uh, start a space venture with SpaceX uh, with Inspiration4. So I didn't hesitate and tried to contribute as much as possible as a director on the ground, helping out with the logistics of that mission. And that led to my role as um, the mission pilot for Polaris Dawn. Wow. So I knew that I was going to feel inadequate sitting around the table with you guys, but uh, <laughs> perhaps not as broadly inadequate. There's an extraordinary breadth of different skills in your backgrounds here, um, you know, from medicine to science to flying fighter planes. Is that part of the way that the crew has been selected to get a broad number of different skill sets? And also, how will that influence the different roles that you undertake on the mission? And anyone can answer. I think it absolutely plays into it. You know, we're on our mission, we're taking on some really big objectives. We're taking on the first um, commercial spacewalk. We're going to the highest Earth orbit flown since we went to the moon. Um, well, actually ever flown. Um, but as far as we've gone from Earth since we went to the moon, mm -hmm. testing out a new Starlink capability. And so I think when Jared assembled the team, he was looking for people that are bringing the skills that we need to support these really ambitious goals. So it's pretty, pretty awesome to get to work with this team. Um, we all have a ton of expertise in specific areas. But I think the most fun is just learning how we work as a team together, how we bring those together and combine them to just be the best team we can be. It certainly seems like the the chemistry is there and uh, that, you know, that you're clicking. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. And we've had the, the fortunate opportunity to do uh, a lot of training together already. Uh, there certainly will be a ramp up uh, leading up to the launch itself. Uh, but it, it's uh, a whole gamut of training that we've been able to participate in. Some of it's stressful type environments, um, but uh, to be able to uh, interact in those environments allows us to understand not only things about ourselves and how we handle those, those stressors, uh, but how our crewmates uh, handle those stressors. Um, and it, it builds a camaraderie uh, like no other. Uh, I absolutely love this crew. Uh, I couldn't imagine. I learn so many things each and every day, especially when we get in the capsule. I'm the, uh, I'm the dumb one with the uh, outdoor education degree. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, it's pick on kid most of the time in the capsule because you look like you're capable of handling it, mate, I'd say. <laughs> but these two SpaceX engineers and Jared's already been there, done that. You know, there's, um, it's a lot of fun for sure. So let me ask you a couple of questions about some of the things that will happen on the mission. So kid, I understand that you volunteered to be the person who is going to be conducting some medical testing whilst you're in outer space. Is that true? And uh, if so, what is it? And did you really volunteer? So there, there was one experiment that I did volunteer. Um, it, it didn't work out as planned. Uh, so we're no longer doing that experiment. However, uh, there is a huge gamut of uh, experiments, science and research that we're going to be conducting on this mission. Uh, in fact, uh, Anna's more or less in charge of a lot of those experiments as the medical officer. Um, 
but the idea is that, you know, being a developmental program, uh, operational in nature, we wanted to identify some of those challenges that, that we will face collectively um, uh, as a humanity trying to expand space exploration and uh, the challenges that we will face for those long-duration space flights. Um, so that's building data on things like how the human body reacts to interstellar radiation, things like this. Does that instruct some of the parameters of this mission? Is that one of the reasons why you're going to the furthest, like, is apogee the right word, uh, versus previous missions other than the moon landing, et cetera? Why you've chosen to be so ambitious in this mission? So the Polaris program as a whole is seeking to test out um, objectives that will serve as building blocks for the long-term aspirations of SpaceX and human space exploration. And so to do things like bring people to build colonies on Mars, you're going to need a lot of things. You're going to need to go really far. You're going to need to have great communication systems, and you're going to need to be able to step outside your capsule and explore that new planet when you get there. And so you're going to need spacesuits for that. And so it's really these long-term objectives that have informed what building block objectives we have chosen to tackle as a part of this mission. So let's talk about that stepping outside of the capsule part of that comment. So you guys will be doing a EVA. Uh, what does that actually stand for? I want to make sure I've got it right before I say it. Extravehicular activity or spacewalk. That was what I was going to say, but you wouldn't know if I was lying. But when you, So uh, my understanding is that two of the four will be participating in the EVA, but that which two is uh, a closely guarded secret. Now, I'm guessing that it will be one man and one woman, most likely. Um, so, kid, I think you're probably out of luck. <laughs> but Anna and Sarah, which one are you going to go outside the vehicle? So we actually... You actually get everyone that is involved in the exposure to the vacuum of space, protected solely by the spacesuit around your body, is actually doing an extravehicular activity. Right, because the whole craft... Yes, so the whole craft is going to vacuum, so all four of us are actually doing the CVA. Right. And you will have to wait to find out who are the two that go outside. Can I have a guess? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next question. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so moving right along, what's it like waiting for something like this to happen? I, I mean, the countdown to any big event in someone's life is a, an experience that we all go through counting down to different things. I think counting down to going into outer space probably is a little bit different. Are you eager? Are you nervous? Are you calm and you think the schedule's perfectly right? What are the emotions that are flowing through your head now thinking that you're going to go to outer space in six months? I think this whole process, um, what's so cool about this program is it is a development program and we are building technology that just doesn't exist. And so the nature of a development program is you just have to get it right. You go, you build hardware, you test, you learn, you iterate until you have the right solution. So I don't know exactly when we're going to be ready. Mm. Um, but the, the work the SpaceX team is doing is absolutely incredible. And to see how much progress they have made in the past months, it's just fascinating to watch the teams work in the way they do and build this new technology for our program. So I guess your answer would be it's exciting. It's incredibly exciting. That you're going to go and do this. And, and it sounds like it's busy as well. It is busy. And um, I think we're just having a blast going through training right now. It certainly looks like it. I think we also have different perspectives as well based on our experiences and our backgrounds of course two engineers at spacex they've 
they've seen it for the last few years. Um, being involved with Inspiration Four on the sidelines, watching them get excited and go through all these emotions, uh, I now see what that was, or I, I see what that's like now. And there's certain moments that we will experience that ha we have experienced during training. I, you know, one for me was was uh, going up to the top of the tower for the launch pad for the first time with the crew, you know, and having those moments of, oh my God, this is, this is real. The first time we actually got in the, the trainer together and closed the hatch. Uh, and it was just us four uh, putting on the spacesuit. So all of those, you know, create these emotions of anticipation um, uh, that we're all looking forward to when this launch does come. Absolutely. How do you feel in, in anticipation of the launch, Anna? Oh, incredibly excited. I think, you know, um, I have dreamed about exploring space and the feeling of getting to experience that firsthand since I was a little girl growing up in Houston, exposed to NASA and the human spaceflight program that, um, that has been built there. And the dream of getting to experience that firsthand for real is really, it's a dream come true. And um, I can sometimes just hardly imagine what those feelings will, will really be like sitting on that launch pad about to go. Now, quickly before I go, because I know that kid, you've got to go and suit up and fly again, but I've got to ask you, <laughs> I've got to ask you a question. Bragging. There's probably 15 or fighter pilots walking around out there that I can detect maybe 10. And I've asked every one of them the same question and every one of them's given me the same answer. Yes, I am. Who's the best pilot here? Yes, I am. He didn't even let me get the question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not confident about many things, but I'll take that one for sure. <laughs> uh, very good. Um, guys, good luck. And I really hope that we can sit down again when you guys return. Um, the last thing I want to say is that I think it's so admirable that charitable aspects of what you guys are doing. I mean, these programs you're involved in have already generated hundreds of millions of dollars for donations to St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So, you know, it's not just the science that's important here, I think. It's an incredible effort for so many reasons, for advancing technology, for marking out the next waypoint toward easily accessible commercial space travel and helping sick kids right now. I'm wishing you guys all the best. Thank you very much for having me. And I'll see you when you return to Earth. Thank you very much. And here's my conversation with Jared Isaacman, the commander of Polaris Dawn. Can you rotate the mic to point a little bit more? Out there, that's good. Perfect. Yep. Com check one, two, three, four, five. Lovely. Well, good afternoon. Oh, yes. Good afternoon, Jared. Thank you so much for having me here uh, at this fighter jet training event in Bozeman, Montana today. Um, first of all, thank you for that flight you just took me on. That was absolutely extraordinary, mate. A wonderful experience. It was awesome to fly with you, man. I, 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 I flown like with a lot of people. I, I don't recall anyone from literally break release until touchdown, just expressing that much enthusiasm. I mean, <laughs> you, you really seem like you were having a good time. Yeah. I don't know whether to be proud or embarrassed about that, but it's true nonetheless. Um, so when was the first time you got behind the stick of a, of an aircraft like that? Not the MiG-29, but of a fighter jet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> started flying in 2004. I started flying twin engine jets, like business jets in 2005. 
my first type rating in an ex-military aircraft was in 2008. So, so about four years after I started my flying career. Um, and that was uh, an L-39 and an A-4 Skyhawk. <clears throat> it was actually flying the A-4 Skyhawk that ultimately brought me in the air show life, which then you know wound up taking us into the defense contracting um, so yeah, that, that was kind of the, the journey that got me into these type of airplanes. Yeah. And that whole sort of trajectory, and I guess if we extend it out to going to outer space for the first time, which you've done, or now the second, um, has this been a, a grand blueprint in your own mind, or is it something that's evolved, um, as you've tried things and liked them and wanted to do more? Uh, just lucky as hell, really. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I was passionate about flying since I was a kid. <clears throat> and I think you can put that all on the movie Top Gun. Love space. You could probably put that on the movie uh, Space Camp. And, uh, you know, so you have that in your mind and then, you know, life goes on. And it wasn't until I was, I started a company at 16. I was, I was like waking up on my keyboard. I was literally getting myself burnt out before I could legally have a beer. And I was like, I got to have something else in my life. And I went back to, I went back to flying and like, like anyone else, you're starting in like a, you know, a Cessna 172, but I just really love the the challenge of it. So you get a taste for it and you get your, you know, you're decent at it. Then you go for like, okay, twin engines and then jet powered aircraft. And then, then you start flying, you know, ex-military craft, but then it's like, you should want to fly with two of them and then three and four, because then you can do formation aerobatics. You can do dogfighting that leads you into an air show team and that leads you into actually a defense contracting business. So it's all this, you know, interesting evolution. You're taking it one step at a time. I never saw that like beginning my aviation career could, could eventually get to the point of, you know, flying in a spaceship that is just, you know, the stars aligning and uh, the ball bouncing your way many, many times throughout the career, you know. Do you still pinch yourself about that, that you've been in outer space and that you're going to be there again in six months time? Totally. I, I know like I'm just, totally luckiest guy in the world on this and, you know, try never to forget it and give back as much as I possibly can. Um, I think about it constantly. Yeah. We're going to get to space, but first I want to talk a little bit about your background and the success that led you to be able to go to space. Um, you started shift for payments in the basement of your parents' house when you were 16 years old. What was the gap in the market you identified and why were you successful? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like, why did it all come to be? It's I hated high school. I mean, that was really what it's about. Like, let's <laughs> come on. I mean, you know, it, it, we can talk about now like market opportunities and whatnot, but in, two, in, in, when I was 16 years old, it was like, I hate raising my hand to ask permission to go to the bathroom in school. My older brothers and sisters are, they're either in college, out of college, med school, they're enjoying and living their lives. And you know, this sucks. So, you know, I, um, I had a small like computer repair business um, I was working at CompUSA, which is like a retail store. And I was using that to generate leads for, uh, for my kind of, you know, computer repair business. And one day a payments company came in and, um, they had a bunch of problems. I was like, well, I can sell you something here or I can come fix this for you, which is kind of my gig. And then they offered me a job and, um, I got exposure to an industry that, um, you know, was actually really still in its early days. Um, you know, 1999, you still were credit card companies were still trying to get consumers to, you know, uh, spend beyond their means and send them a bunch of credit cards and businesses were still figuring out how to accept them as a form of payment. So there was just a lot of opportunity there. Like I said, really hated high school, wanted, you know, was raised to be very independent, started a business and from there just never stopped uh, learning. And I think kind of similar to my aviation career where you're always looking for the next challenge, um, because that kind of what fuels you and drives you, it, it became the exact same thing with my 
business career was always just trying to find that next level and and play and perform at a higher level. There is a rebellious streak in you, isn't there? Because I mean, I'm sure I look out the front of this hangar where we're sitting now, right? And there's a MiG-29 and there's this whole variety of other jets. When you conceived of the idea of owning a personal fleet of these type of aircrafts, I'm sure all sorts of people told you that there were reasons that you couldn't do it. Yeah, I mean- and not just financial. I mean, like, it just can't be that easy in a, in a regulated place to to go through the proceeds you had to to own all those aircraft, to have them working and, and being able to fly people around like you are today. It's true, but, you you know, you start small and, um, and like, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I generally actually try and follow a correct path, even though at times, and, you know, leaving high school is probably not a great example of that early, but like, you know, my aviation career started like anyone else's. When I started flying these kind of airplanes, like an L39, it was a slow buildup, you know, then you get to again, like two or three, but you know, you do it the right way. Like there are people buy one of these airplanes, you know, beyond their means either to support them properly uh, from a maintenance perspective or beyond their abilities from just their, you know, natural education evolution as a, a pilot. Like, you know, I've been almost at this 20 years. So it was like, there was a lot of along that journey before you're flying a MiG-29 and um, was always surrounded just like in everything, business, space, flying, like always surrounded by awesome people that you can learn from and, and just use that to push yourself to be better. Yeah. So. When you sat on the launch pad for Inspiration4, how did that feel versus when we were just sitting on the runway in the MiG-29 that you are completely familiar with and fly regularly? Yeah. So, um, you know, I had a, uh, I've had a number of great, you know, um, mentors in business and flying, but one stood out and that's who I was thinking about when I was on the launch pad. Um, he's one of the most famous, uh, naval aviators in history. Uh, like, you know, yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the picture of an F-14 Tomcat going uh, knife edge past an aircraft carrier. It was like almost like a, uh, it went around, it was like a viral picture for a while on the internet. It was like, this guy was grounded for six, it actually wasn't. That was just his routine. Uh, and his name is, uh, you know, Dale Snort Snodgrass. And um, just like an unbeatable uh, fighter pilot. I mean, he was in the nice. 80s. He's a nice. Yeah, I, I mean, he, not like a technical ace, but he, um he, uh, 1980s, I mean, he was weapon school, Top Gun, you know, Top Gun instructor, led a squadron to night one of Desert Storm, um, and, you know, became a very close friend. We we flew together a bunch on the air show circuit, um, and he was the chief pilot at Draken. We were really, really close. And um, unfortunately, he uh, he died in a plane crash uh, in uh, just June, you know, June of uh, summer of 2020 of 2021. He was supposed to be here at the first FJT weekend and, uh, and would have been great. Cause like everybody loves flying and hanging with such a, a legend, but I mean, you know, he taught us a way to fly on the edge. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, you just have to, you have to hack it. You're uncomfortable. Like the, it's not always clear in a million out like it is, you know, today, like you're in the weather, it's unexpected, you know, things break on the airplane. Like you gotta, you gotta find inside yourself how you're going to push through this. Mm. Um, and you got to hack it. And, um, you know, I actually had some of his ashes that I flew on, uh, on inspiration Four. but when we were in the launch pad and it was counting down, it's like, okay, we're 30 seconds away from a controlled explosion. 
that's going to send us 17,500 miles an hour into orbit. And I was just like, I was just thinking about him and that and like, what would he be whispering in my ear? And he'd be like, look, you just gotta, you gotta, you gotta focus and you gotta hack it and push through this. Um, and, uh, and that's what I was thinking about as the, as the clock ticked down. I guess you, it's hard for you to know, but do you anticipate feeling different when you're on the launch pad this time, given that you've been there before? Totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, that was, you know, we were an all rookie crew with inspiration for, and, um, you know, tons of confidence for sure. I mean, super confident in SpaceX, but I mean, you know, you had, uh, at that point you had demo, uh, two crew one and crew two that launched before us. That's it. I mean, you're talking, you know, since the space shuttle was retired, only 10 had gone up. Um, and, and crew two wasn't even back at that point in time. So like it was still early on, but you had a lot of confidence in the SpaceX team. You knew that it was going to work out, but it's like, you got a controlled explosion that's going to happen soon. This will be different. Like, um, you'll know what to expect. And honestly, I'm going to be, I'm really going to be looking at my crew members. Like I am so excited to see their reactions because they've all worked so hard in their lives, made awesome contributions to commercial space, and now they're going to get to live it. And I just, I can't wait to see their reactions when we get there. Yeah, I bet. Um, it's it's such an interesting point that you make about um, uh, looking around at the crew members. I just sat with them uh, right now before we began to speak. What, what are your observations about how the team is building? Um, it seems to, they, the chemistry seems to be very, very good. I, the chemistry was perfect day one. Uh, you know, we had all known each other from inspiration for, you know, um, uh, Anna, uh, Anna Menon, she, she's a lead mission director, so she can run a whole mission and has many times for human spaceflight. But they took that expertise on inspiration for and assigned her to the families. So while we were in space, she was basically translating everything technical coming out of mission control so our families could understand what's going on. So that's a... I mean, you build a, a relationship there when you're, you know, kind of entrusting a person to keep your family informed. And she would be, you know, had something gone wrong, she would have been the first in the know and would have had to relay that. Mm. Um, obviously, uh, you know, Sarah Gillis, lead astronaut trainer for SpaceX, got us ready for Inspiration4. We were incredibly well prepared. So we were super close throughout that journey. And Kid was there the whole time making his contributions as the mission director on on the Inspiration4 side and, and a lot of history too. Mm. So we have all known each other and had that, awesome bond, um, you know, really right from the get-go. And what I'd say is like, cause I, I love my inspiration for crew and I love my Polaris Dawn crew is like you build a crew for the, for the mission objectives. And, you know, inspiration Four was about inspiring everyone that, Hey, the time has come and now it's possible. Um, and I can't think of a better crew for that. And now it's like, now that the, now that that door is open and you want to, you know, build all these missions uh, to really open it up for everyone, it's a different game. It's developmental. It's, it's, it's got a lot of new things. It's got its own set of challenges. We couldn't have a better crew for those objectives. Totally. Let's talk about the mission. So uh, what are the greatest hits of the things that you'll be doing in Polaris Dawn? Um, how will that differ from Inspiration 4? And I'd also, after that, love to talk a little bit about the two further planned missions as part of the Polaris program that you have planned. Sure. I mean, again, Inspiration4 was really just about, um, really about just getting it done. Mm. It really was, uh, I mean, that was kind of SpaceX's goal from the beginning is like, how do we make this as clean and simple of a mission as possible? Because nobody's done a free flyer mission like this in a really long time. Dragon hasn't done it like this. And, um, and we don't like, we don't have the, you know, uh, highly selected screened, you know, crew members on this. So like, let's just keep this 
straightforward. Um, you know, and we, I think generally did that, but we pushed in some areas that we thought would be beneficial for subsequent missions, the, the altitude we went to for sure, the mission duration. And then we tried to fill it with some, a fair amount of science and research, but also leave time for, for crew members to be themselves. Cause that was part of it. I mean, you know, really, I think it, in terms of checking the box on the inspirational component of, of I-4, like, I don't think people wanted to see necessarily like, you know, um, you know, Cyan, you know, drawing her blood for a science parent. They wanted to see her painting. They wanted to see yeah. her poetry or, you know, Haley and who she is and the, the, the challenges she overcame in life um, to bring hope to many. And then there's that picture of her in the cupola showing what she looked like when she was going through cancer treatment. And now, you know, um, as the, as the youngest American to go into space. So, you know, we freed up some time for that because that was also important. Then we came back that, that was I-4 it was always about, um, you know, you know, get this done for all the exciting missions to follow. And now we're on to Polaris, which is like, let's, let's really build it now. Let, let's open this thing up for everybody. And there's a lot we have to do along the way. We're going to need some spacesuits. We're going to have to go a lot farther into space. And, and we're not going to be able to jam up the handful of, you know, relatively older uh, national assets like Tedris and satellites and, and uh, ground stations. We let's use Starlink. Uh, so like we have awesome objectives. It's, um, it's, uh, it's like, I think the natural um, extension coming off inspiration for. So. Mm. Tell me about the EVA. Why you, why that's an important task to undertake in outer space, um, what that adds to the research value of the mission um, and how much more complicated it makes the mission to do an EVA. Yeah. I mean, they, we, I think we all know like the biggest barrier for this whole idea of opening up, you know, this last great frontier and truly exploring, you know, the, the solar system, the galaxy, the universe around us, like we got to bring the cost down. You got to bring them down materially. Like, it, 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 like you just can't experiment. You can't do much at all when it is so cost prohibitive that only a handful of world superpowers can afford to send people to space. And we're not even talking that frequently, mm. right? Like we're still stretching it out several, several months at a, at a time. So we got to bring down the cost. SpaceX did a heck of a job with that, with, um, with the reusable rocket technology on Falcon. Like that's, that was a game changer that brought costs down to such an extent that not only commercial missions like Inspiration4 are possible, you now have government, uh, government sending astronauts to space that never before would have been able to afford it. Wouldn't mm. have been able to contribute into the European space agency or, or, um, or, or NASA's programs. And now they say, you know what, it's gotten to the point where like, we should have some representation in low earth orbit. And they may even have, you know, space stations at some point. So like, you know, SpaceX did a great job and they're about to get that to the next level, which is, which is Starship. But when this all works and we have lots of people in space, you are not going to stay in the vehicle. And if we get to the lunar surface or we get to Mars, you're not going to stay in that habitat. You're going to want to get outside. Like you're going to, whether it's building on the structures, uh, exploration. You're going to want to get out and you're going to need spacesuits to do it. Well, all that great work that SpaceX has done in terms of launch vehicle costs, that really hasn't happened on the spacesuit side. They're incredibly complicated. They are basically a piece, a piece of clothing that becomes your spaceship when pressurized. It is not as simple as like just hooking up an umbilical and puffing that thing up. I mean, you have to have various degrees of insulation, protection from micrometeorite debris. You have to have uh, multiple redundancies on your uh, on your cooling and your uh, your oxygen flow. 
because the current IVA suit is a last line of defense. You're already accepting so much else went wrong that you need it, that you don't have to build redundancy in because the redundancy is everything else. But when you vent the vehicle down to vacuum, that's all you got. It's got to have so much more into it. So people haven't touched these things in 40 years. They literally cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And it crushes the whole notion that we're going to get to the moon and Mars and have like thousands of people on it when the suits will bankrupt everybody. So here's SpaceX taking on this awesome challenge in like two years time, really. Um, we've got a suit that's you know gone through a development cycle. It's going through its final acceptance testing in the vacuum chambers. We're going to do a final ATP check in the chamber, and then we're going to test this thing out. And and it and hopefully, I know it was long waited, but all that background explains the importance of why having new suits that that's are, are such important. A good, it's, you know? it's, it's honestly, it's not something that's that I immediately thought of intuitively, but it's so true. Like every application um, uh, in space is going to require a more affordable. Uh, version of this technology. Let's talk about the two next planned missions in the Polaris program. So the second one, you plan to move the Hubble telescope into a different orbit. Is that right? Well, we'd certainly, uh, to, I mean, we plan to boost its orbit. Um, so we'd love to. Um, this is in NASA's court. We pitched this uh, I guess it, I guess we started in uh, we started before James Webb uh, telescope was launched. Um, that we thought this was a logical option for uh, Polaris two, assuming Polaris one goes right and we you know have a good suit. SpaceX has proven out you know basic EVA operation capabilities. All right, let's go. Let's give uh, Hubble a new lease on life. Let's boost it up because even it. it it's coming home at some point and, and a lot sooner than people may think given just the solar cycle we're going through now. So let's boost that thing up. Let's give it some more capabilities. We're not talking the shuttle multi-day, you know, eight hour EVAs type thing. It's like a lot of time has passed. Thing, you know, iPhones are have pack a lot of power. You probably can detach something that gives it, you know, a heck of a lot of um, capabilities uh, rather quickly. Yeah. And, uh, and then we'll separate from it you know, and my feeling is like, geez, you know, you give that thing a hundred kilometers more, you can get 10 more years of life out of it operating alongside James Webb. And then, then you send a starship up that may cost very little at that time, capture it, bring it back. And you drop that bad boy in the Smithsonian. How cool would that? So like, that's our pitch. We're not charging for it. Now NASA's got to weigh, um, you know, weigh the risk reward on it. We'll see what happens. You're ambitious, aren't you? <laughs> It's a team. There's a team of ambition that's being applied to these things. You made light reference to the third um, planned Polaris mission there. Um, so this will be the first time that Starship, the larger format vehicle, goes into outer space. If um, the program follows the steps that you envisage and uh, the sec first, second, and third missions all go well, um, do you think that you'll be done then? I mean, you're a young guy. Do you think you'll be wanting to look at the next mission? I don't know how young I'll be when that third one goes, to be honest. I mean, you know, they got to get to orbit. Um, like that program is going fast by like any measurement, but, um, you know, uh, like 40 years old now, they've got to get to orbit. They're going to do uh, an awful lot of tests getting Starlinks out there. Um, and then they got to, they got to get, uh, you know, low earth orbit re refilling uh, going. And then they, uh, they need to get it out to, to lunar orbit in order to support, uh, you know, the human landing system. So, I think they've got some priorities in front of them, um, you know, that, you know, that they have to, they have to solve for first. Um, but yeah, I mean, when that day comes, how awesome will it be? Because for as cool as it'll be to see people walking on the moon, if they're getting there via, 
you know, four and a half billion dollar disposable rocket, it's, that's not going to be very accessible for many. But when it, when when Starship end end is operational and you got factories cranking them out, that's when everything changes. So uh, it'll be a huge moment, huge moment for the players program, but even, even more so for all of humanity. Do you think that you'll see man walk on Mars in your lifetime? I do. If you had to have a guess, how far off do you think that is? Uh, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, somebody actually was, uh, before I even flew on Inspiration4, I went to the the Air Force Academy and, um, you know, some of the incredibly smart students there. And one of them asked me like what the exact same question you just did. And I said, this will all come down to the availability of low cost capital. We are talking like Manhattan project level, th- you know, endeavors ongoing here. You've got a city built in Starbase, Texas, you've got factories cranking these things out. And even though you have the richest guy in the world that's funding it, it will take more than that. And um, so like what happened in the last two years, we went from like money being essentially free from an interest rate perspective to, you know, many times higher than that. That's going to slow it down. Like in my opinion, you know, in 2021, it had a real shot inside of the decade. Uh, I think like you're outside of that now. I think like, you know, this is something between like you know, 15 and, and at least 15 plus years. And, and honestly, like if things really get set back in the world, like, um, you know, it could be, could be much longer than that. That's such an interesting point about the funding model for these sorts of programs now. So, you know, we've gone from one where it was purely a government enterprise. That was the environment in which funding dried up because it's obviously politically difficult to divert. Now we have this model of, of almost like a public-private partnership elsewhere in the world. Long-term or mid-term, do you envisage that incremental private money coming into space will cannibalize government expenditure or that governments will be encouraged to continue spending, if not spend more? Do you think the government's looking for a way to push it to the side or do you think it'll re-energize their interest? I think the, I think the answer is kind of both. Like I, I, for, for the most part, like I think especially people, those entrusted in, in positions at NASA and the government that want to, um, you know, push out even higher into the into the high ground, which has had strategic value since like the beginning of time. Um, you know, exploring who knows what may be found, whether it's new forms of energy or whatnot. And to some extent, I think there's a national pride element to who gets someplace first. There is that that race that's ongoing. Um, and I think most people would would agree that like not having all our eggs in one basket makes sense. There is a government agenda to support all those things. So there's everything from exploration to military and defense, um, you know, national interests that make sense. And I think from a commercial side, there is, but there is a problem there too, which is we don't actually have a real space economy. We haven't figured out like, why is it imperative for us to go to Mars? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm with Elon making life multiplanetary makes sense. And the dinosaurs aren't here anymore, but like all the arguments about we could better put money here on earth still, still carry a lot of mm-hmm. weight. Um, other than national pride and operating a f- orbital laboratory at great cost. Like there is no real reason we need lots and lots of people in space, but that will change right. as the cost to access comes down and we figure it out, whether it's biomedical or whatnot. So like there is a commercial element to this too, but I would say like, you know, if if we have like a substantial downturn economically, like those, those, do- those missions like I-4 and Polaris don't happen and Dear Moon, all those like um, cause from like a private sector, those, those funds can like move around just as quickly as the government side, you know? Yeah, totally. All right. We have five minutes. I got two more questions. One's a fun one. And then the one I finish on is, uh, is the mo- a very important one. The fun one is you've been flying planes, fighter jets, you've been to outer space. Have you ever seen a UFO? 
No. And what do you make of um, some of the stuff that's going on now? You know, do you do you do the circles you move in? Do people believe these whistleblowers that are showing up at Congress and stuff? I mean, what's happening? I mean, I you know, I ran a a defense company for ten years where our job was to be professional bad guys. Mm. Um, whether you pick it, China, Russia, Iran. Um, I'm also a Occam's Razor kind of guy, and it's like, do I think that these floating discs that somehow are always near a naval base uh, on either the east or west coast, or you know, near Las Vegas, where a lot of government testing takes right. place. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, do I think that that is more likely an adversary that's interested in what's going on, or us testing our own capabilities, yeah. um, or do I think it's you know a spacecraft that somehow you know has gone past like you know, the galactic speed limit and is chosen to make its first visit here only in those locations rather than let's just come down in Times Square. It seems less right? likely. I so I, I think you think you know where I'm, where I yeah, stand on that. Yeah, one. yeah. No, interesting. Um, for what it's worth, I, I share your, your um, natural and healthy skepticism. Um, Last last topic I want to talk about is the work you're doing with St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so inspiration for um, and this project, as well as all the other ones in the pipeline, are generating a, an extraordinary amount of charitable funding for the Children's Hospital. Could you tell us a little bit about um, why that's important to you uh, and a little an update on how your fundraising um, and charitable efforts are going at the moment? Yeah, so it's... Um this has been, first of all, part of my life for a very long time. Like any adventure that I've been lucky enough to go on, um, did some around the world record flights when I flew air shows, you know, back in 11, 12, 13, we always tried to include a, a charitable component to it. So like, I feel like if you do have these, obli- if you do have these opportunities in life, you're not living your life to the fullest unless you, unless you like lean in and embrace them, but you also have to leave the world a better place along the way to whatever means you can. So like make a wish was a big part of the air show flying and such. So when inspiration four came around, there was no question in my mind that that, that, you know, approach would continue. Uh, and the platform should be big enough that we could raise like really, really meaningful dollars, uh, and, and it ultimately that's why we picked St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And it's, it's, you know, we raised over a quarter of a billion dollars with inspiration for it certainly continue on with the Polaris program right now. Um, and, uh, and honestly, like, I think that like, this should be a model for everyone else. It is not mm-hmm. like you, you, you only have to pay attention to this world for like five minutes to know that like the billionaires in space thing, you know, neglecting everything here on earth, burn earth, get to Mars, like mm-hmm. have all this binary view of it's one or the other, instead of like, we can balance this all out and actually do great for earth and humankind. Um, and if you don't do that, you just invite Mm. the criticism that's just, um, that's not needed because it's going to take all the support around the world to get to Mars. Yeah, absolutely. Jared, thank you so much for taking the time today. Um, and thank you again for taking me up in the flight. Yeah, it was, it was an extraordinary experience. Um, I'm wishing you all the best in the mission. I'm going to cl- follow very closely. Um, and, uh, maybe we can speak again when you return to earth. Uh, thank you very much. Sounds wonderful. It was great flying with you. Cheers, mate. That's it for this episode of The Intersection. Stay tuned for another update on space before year's end. Head to www.intersection-podcast.com for more information on the show and upcoming episodes. Until next time, I'm Jack Wright. Thank you very much for listening.